Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler, buddy. Hump day, Wednesday night. How's it been, man? Hump day. Oh, we got we, we we're twinning here. We're beer twinning. Party wood, fine pokey lager. Yes, sir. Got six more in the basement. Not gonna be able to get them in there in the broadcast, but let's just go out and buy you some and join in Lane Stadium this year, buddy. It's it's been another great week, another week off of work, but week off of work with a lot more work. <laughs> I, I I know you're doing more, or at least a somewhat <laughs> equal amount of work, despite not working. Meanwhile, I'm over here. I'm back in the office for the first time since uh, March of last year. Holy this smoke. week. And then also starting, uh, you know, master cl- master's classes for the semester today. So it's been a full day. I finished up with that about 10 minutes before we jumped on here. So nice. How was the commute in from Mechanicsville downtown? It's not bad. My new parking spot has cut 10 minutes off my walk in combined with my commute. So I'm, I'm saving 10 minutes now. Wait a second. Did they put you on this side of the river? I'm on this side of the river, man. I'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer on Mayo Island. I, I, I am now at the train station. So <laughs> you're moving up in the world down there, then, man. They, yeah, they, man. I'm, I'm getting the, I'm getting the primo spots now. That is absolutely sweet, man. And me, I'm just doing me, hanging out with the kid, having a good time. Much needed, much needed time, and having a great time with her. But it is work. It is work from 5.30 a.m. to when the wife gets home. and But it's been good. You know, not many companies give that, you know, parental leave. I got a month yeah. of it. It's awesome. I'm going to take a, another week. And then after Labor Day, back to the normal grind. And, uh, man, looking at Hokie football, um, we have a lot to cover tonight. Last week with Breast Pick 6 Previews, Awesome, awesome time with him. We spent some time with him before and after. Um, got me even hyped for the season. But tonight, what we're looking at, folks, are two big topics. We're going to talk about the alliance announcement yesterday, which some people are clowning on. Some people saying it wasn't an announcement. Um, I got some different views around us, too. And then we are going to give our season preview record. Do not take this to Vegas or any sports app because you <laughs> might lose money. I, take it to Vegas. I, I I like my picks, man. Ooh, this is not. Um, take this, it. Hold on. All picks are for entertainment purposes only. Lock it up. You cannot do it. <laughs> right, but let's start it out. We're gonna we're gonna start a start out with the. Uh, I don't know, Brian. What do you call this? Let's just call this the depressing opening, and let's start with really sad news from last week. Emmanuel Belmore um, has to retire. You know, what do you think, Brian? I mean, you played football, and this guy has to stop before essentially it's over for him. Yeah, and I mean, I had to do something similar for different reasons. So, I mean, it, it sucks any time that you still have eligibility. Like, if, if, if you're yourself, you'd still be playing, but something else kind of takes that away from you. So th- that aspect of it always um, always sucks big time. And, uh, I, I feel for him. I mean, he 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 bled maroon and orange when he went out on that field, man. And yep. um, you know, it felt like he was starting to 
come into his own a little bit towards the end of last season. Wanted to see if he was able to take a step this season, but with some of those, uh, you know, the concussions and everything else going on towards the end of the season, it just looks like he was never able to get back to, to, to where he needed to be to play. So unfortunate for him, but hats off to him. We'll we'll miss him uh, out there on the field this year. Um, Absolutely. Um, Hats off to him. Hats off to him for also trying it to give it a try in fall camp one more time. And then, realize where he was he couldn't do it um there are people out there that i'm sure would have went through it but obviously for him it was a look down the road in 20 years essentially i want to say when we are in our life when you got a wife and kids and there's going to be you know potential consequences down the road um for the Hokies, uh definitely hurts defensive end you know him gone alec bryant gone robert wooden gone um and that's big um you know, we were we were hoping for Belmar. Then you know, you got a, a healthy um, Garbit back. Yep. Probably having a, a a first two lines where you felt pretty good about, even if you weren't necessarily yep. you know jumping for joy. Um, now that gets a little bit sketchy heading into the season. Um, first line, not not too concerned about, but kind of that that fourth and fifth. Um, yeah, DN is where you start seeing a little bit. Uh, well, you feel good about Jalen Griffin. Um, yeah. Eli Adams yeah. we haven't seen as much with. The question is, Cole, Stretch Carroll, one of these younger guys, do they take a prominent role? And I think, you know, we're 10 days from seeing that. Um, but as far as Belmar goes, that man will be forever remembered for getting on that ball. UVA game to extend the streaks both ways. Yep. He was there. He got it. And, you know, I think there was a picture of him. Somebody put it on the Twitter, and it was a picture of him holding the ball. And you could just see the UVA fans or the faces were like, oh, God, no, not again, not again. But um, Emmanuel Belmar, best of luck to you in whatever you do. I am sure you're going to do great things, whatever walk of life takes you. All right, more sad news. We're starting all sad because, you know, we got to get out of the way early. I can't mix it in today. Um. Xavier Simmons decommits. Um, some people said they had known about this for months, weeks. I, I, nothing. I don't ever remember seeing anything. But again, I've also got three kids. I was running around like chicken head copped off. Um, is that a position group? I think we're okay. It sucks losing because he's a hell of an athlete. Yep. But it's not like a crippling position where we have no one coming in or no one already on roster of talent. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard things like family had um friend or or acquaintance on coaching staff there be a shot so could could be something related to that but it's it's still a big loss for the Hokies you can't spin it any other way Mm -hmm. um you know this was probably our I'd say number two number three uh recruit for this cycle and you know losing a player of that of that caliber you know most Composite borderline four star, four star by two four seven. I mean, you, you can't just say, "Oh, well, that that that's not going to make a difference." It's, it's definitely going to make a difference, um, especially in the long run. There, so definitely sucks losing out on um, on Xavier Simmons and hurts some of our case that we're trying to make against the uh, the other people in the ACC. We went into North Carolina and got one, and now we don't. So yep. there, there's there's that element of it too. Now he he didn't go to UNC. Nope, but. When, when, you get, when you get a win in in the state of North Carolina, 
you, you got to take one. And, and unfortunately, we weren't able to close the deal and, and carry that through to, to signing day. So, um, you know, best of luck to him at Missouri. Um, but I was looking forward to seeing him in Maroon and Orange. True. You talk about the relationship. It's the Eli Drinkwitz connection who was at App State just a couple years ago. So, obviously, you know, App State just literally probably the same amount of drive from the 336 as it is to Blacksburg. So, obviously, a connection there. Um, and like you said, we had talked about he was one of the crown jewels, right? Yep. Gunner, Ramon, we considered Rashad, we considered him. So, you lost a crown jewel. Now, I'm not going to say the name yet, but there is a name that is coming up more and more often on Hokies boards um, from the state of North Carolina, now playing in Virginia for this season, um, that be on the lookout for this guy. Just I'm not going to say the name, but start reading, folks. Um, the one other thing that I did not like about his decommitment, he literally did it right before Cam Johnson committed. Like, listen, man, you want to decommit, that's cool. But you legitimately know this guy is going to the university that you're leaving. Just think about that. That's kind of those life decision things where it's kind of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to laugh at this, Brian, but it's kind of like if you get pregnant and you go to a friend's wedding, you do not announce that you're having a freaking baby at the friend's wedding. You just don't do it. It is bad taste. <laughs> That's the way I feel about that, and we're going to shut the door on it. All right, there we next go. up, big guy. Um, and I don't know if you necessarily say this is sad news, but it's kind of eye-opening news. With Devin Taylor getting in the transfer portal, how did you read this? I read that as he was essentially going to be the third guy up at boundary safety because I, it looks like they're cross-training um, – Tay Daly at both positions. Yeah. And he's essentially going to be the first sub in um, with more than likely Keonta Jenkins taking over at, at free and obviously uh, Devin Hunter locking up boundary safety there. So sounds like Tay Daly was going to be the guy, the kind of pivot player. um, And he was kind of ahead of where Devin Taylor was um, at boundary safety, but also the, the, the best man up at the, at free as well. So, he probably Devin saw it as probably not going to get a, a lot of opportunities on the field this year. Maybe he can go and see see take my talent somewhere else and and get on the field. It was it was kind of the you know the reason he came here. He saw an opportunity last year, um, based on when he came in. I mean that was that was kind of big for us. Uh, you know, shoring up a departure with you know a cornerback, and he he was pegged to play either cornerback or, and then we had to end up moving him over to, to safety once we started having some, uh, some thinness there. So. Exactly. Um, it, it, it's definitely a, a little depth concern just because we, we felt like we had about four or five guys that were, that were ready to play at the safety position. Now we're probably closer to three or four. Um, so definitely, you know, another the, the the theme of this season, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be depth because yes. front line we're, we're a decent team. Yep, we're probably a, I'll say an eight or nine win team if we stay one hundred percent healthy mm-hmm. all year. But one injury at certain positions could drop about three or four wins off the off the table there. So it, it could go from um, a really solid season to a really. It would make the last um, few years 
you know, I say that 20 and 18 look actually decent. I say the one piece you talked about, Tay Daly. I think it says Tay's better at both than he is. So Tay's essentially your de facto. It's the old school NCAA, right? You have the one safety. You have two safeties that are 99, and one backup is a 90 and a 92. And he's your backup at both. And then the redshirt freshman, you uh, just put his third string. But I also wonder if Jalen Stroman and Walker aren't pushing him to where it was to a point we can't see it. Is it to a point where I'm not even really three deep now? Like, I'm four deep. I'm five deep. Like, these guys have caught me and have passed me. And and I would think more so that's the case. Because even if Tazier 1A, 1B, you still have potential to be that next man up. So you're, you're one injury away from at least seeing rotational duties. So, yeah, I mean, it could be that, that Strowman had, had passed him even on the depth chart. Um as far as uh, boundary safety is concerned. And that would definitely put him in a situation where he really would, would struggle to get time on the field um, this season, barring, you know, catastrophic injury situation at that position. Yep, that's true. All right, so the last piece of happy or bad news, happy, I don't know, depending on who you are. <laughs> yeah, th- this, one, this one's going to depend on perspective. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Bo Davidson officially today is now director of recruiting at Texas Tech. Um, Apparently getting a handsome pay raise, also getting to where he is about three hours from family, both of he and his wife. Congratulations for him on that. Um, For us, we don't have a director of recruiting, but he had only been in the position three months when John Yetzi um, officially stepped down. Um, So he kind of has guided the ship the last three months through some very good commitments. Um, you give him credit for that because when you're the director, that is partially your job. Now, the argument is now going, we need to hire in season. Well, as somebody pointed out yesterday, well, we're in dead period. You, you can't do anything anyway. So do you really need a director? Um, I don't think we do. I think you just let whoever's on staff kind of run the ship. We're only a you know, we're, st- we're only a few months from signing day. You let them guide it in versus trying to teach someone on the fly. What about you? This one's difficult because I think in terms of timing, I think if you're going to lose your director of recruiting, probably this is one of the better times to do it because you're far enough along in the 22 cycle where he's not the guy that's really working with those relationships anymore. Uh, it's more yeah. in the hands of the coaches, the other personnel on the staff. It's, it, he's not really as hands-on on those things anymore. Um, second, you're not really into the 23 cycle proper yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the only concern is getting someone in that can kind of hit the ground running to make sure that we don't fall behind um, getting – getting those names and establishing those relationships early early enough in the cycle where we feel like we're placing ourselves in a position heading into the um, 2022 calendar year where we can actually, you know, close some of those, um, you know, once February, March and April hit, which is when we, you know, you really start seeing those first big round of commitments come through for the next cycle. Absolutely. And, you know, Bo is a Texas guy and, you know, uh, he, he he gets a bad rap of, of what happened in Virginia, and, and and we don't know. That's stuff we don't know from behind the scenes. We don't know his involvement with 
how much Virginia was pushed, how much Texas was pushed. Um, he seems like an enthusiast. Well, we know Texas was pushed heavily. heavily. Oh, yeah, we, just, yeah, yeah. We, we, we don't know to what degree Virginia was given the short change as a result of that. True. Um, we don't know. And, we, yeah. and we'll never know unless you talk with him. Um, and, you know, this was the, the kind of a fun thing to see on Twitter yesterday, Brian. People are like, well, who wants to be the new director of recruiting? And I saw, like, Vegas Robinson and some people, oh, me, I'll do it, I'll do it. Positions like that, and this is no disrespect to anybody, positions like that you aren't just given off the street. Bo Davidson had essentially worked as a GA or in some type of capacity role for 14 years before he got that opportunity. And I know guys move up and down faster. And I see a lot of people saying, I can do really good relationships here and there. Or as director of recruiting, you can't actually go do the relationships there. You can't. Yeah. It's NCAA. You can't. You can be from the 804 and have the greatest relationship with, with Highland Springs, with Verona, with Manchester, with every school. Cool. This is this is what you're doing. You're calling them. And there's only so many times you can talk to the kids. Director of recruiting is essentially putting the game plan in place. So when I see guys saying we can do this and this, if the guys who are interested in doing that, my suggestion, Ron, and, and this would be I'd love to see these guys do that. And one of the guys in Richmond did it. Davon Morgan create football camps. Hopkins brothers did it. Get the kids in camp if you want to push them to Virginia Tech because you bring them in, you teach them something, and then potentially you take them to Blacksburg. Yep. But director of recruiting is a whole different story. It's a it's a different ball game, and and I'll say this: I I would love to have someone in that role that's either a former player or mm-hmm. a graduate that has the passion for the school. You, I so, think you absolutely 100% need that. And that's one thing that Bo probably did not bring to the table. He not 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 the greatest understanding of you know Virginia high schools and what which high schools are important, but also the passion for be, you know everybody Blacksburg feels like home to pretty much everyone that goes there. I get that. Yeah. But there's a there's a big difference between living that and experiencing that after the fact. And having someone that is an alumni or, or played for the Hokies would certainly be an asset. That's not to say that you can throw any former player in that role and expect to bear the fruit. I think that, I think that's a very gross overstatement of, of what the director of recruiting does. And you know, if the guys are really interested like that now to me, there are, there are two guys actually take that three guys, former Hokies who are on the path that they wanted a position like that. Davon's down at E and H. Yep. After he did his camps up here, you've got Rock Carmichael's up in Michigan coaching high school football. I think it is actually at a preparatory academy, and it's Eddie Whitley up at JMU. Yep. Now you think about what they're doing; they're not doing recruiting. They are doing on-field coaching. Is that the path they take? We don't know. If you ask my personal opinion right now, to me, Pearson Prelude, I think could get in that role and absolutely dominate. Pearson Prelude was an All-American at Virginia Tech. He knows the culture. Pearson Prelude coached in Radford. I think he's been on the staff long enough doing player development to understand the state of Virginia, but I also think he understand would understand 
the whole footprint of recruiting. He yeah. played in the league 10 years. I mean, why not Pearson? You know what? I mean, I, I can't really think of it. If you're looking for an on-staff candidate that isn't just promoting someone um, that's already working on the recruiting staff, yeah, Pearson would be the, the number one choice in my book just because having that former player aspect, NFL pedigree, um, understanding Super Bowl of, ring. Super Bowl ring, yeah. <laughs> understanding ring. of and and you know, he under I think he understands what kind of built the Hokies mm-hmm. when he was there and understands what it's gonna take to kind of get that type of mentality back. And it starts with winning the state. I mean, you can say what say what you want. We we absolutely need to have a footprint that's wider than what we had in, in Beamer's era. Mm-hmm. It, it can't. It can't just be mostly Virginia and then a handful of kids from Florida. But you need to still put your flag in your state and and say, "Nah, you're 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 not getting all these all these top ten state kids. We're exactly. gonna get at least two a cycle, maybe three a cycle." And until we start doing that, it, it's still gonna be a struggle. And we, we've done better this year. But this th- this should be kind of the 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 low average, not the the heights. You know what I'm saying? Well, a hundred percent. This is this is what this is what we would expect yearly. Like an average recruiting cycle is kind of what we're looking this year. You in the top ten, multiple in the top fifteen, multiple in the top twenty. This would be an average. What we'd like to see is obviously me and you would be like three to four in the top ten six plus in the top 15 and if we're going to recruit 25 kids eight in the top 25 essentially absolutely 30 percent of the top 25 kids um should be coming to virginia tech in virginia so you know that's our feel on that anything else to add on this one brian before we roll on i say i'm i'm with tally who i just threw the uh the the comment up there We we should be right at or in the top twenty every year, True. and every five years we should be dropping a top fifteen class. Yeah. If we want to get to where we want to get, which is winning the ACC somewhat consistently and competing for a college football playoff position, absolutely, that's what we have to do. One hundred percent. But we've only done one top fifteen class ever since the rankings have come out. Now maybe you go back and say. Uh, well, they should have readjusted some of those because they completely whiffed. Well, we'll see about that later. All right, let's keep the – well, let's get to the happy times. Happy times. Happy time, y'all. <laughs> and let's start. We got a commitment. He is a composite four-star. He is a top 50 corner in the country. He is a top 300 player. Cam Johnson out of the St. Francis Academy in Baltimore, six foot one sixty five corner. Brian, what do you think of Cam? I really like this a lot. Um, I like getting back into Maryland. I like this guy's uh, attributes that he brings to the table. Good size right out the gate, moves well, uh, turns his hips well. Doesn't shy away from contact either from the film I've seen. So. All around a really good pickup, and hopefully we can we can close the deal and get him through signing day. Yeah, definitely going to keep a definitely going to be a fight with him. Um, obviously, I think it was us in Maryland as the finalist. Um, but really good pickup, really good landing. Um, and you know we're still hanging on to like 
15th, 13th, or 12th with 247. Um, even because when Simmons came on and he came and Cummins went off, he came on. We literally stayed at the same spot because they were very yeah. closely ranked. V- um, very close, yeah, very close. I think two four seven was pretty much a, a pick them between yeah, them. Pick em. But yep. Cam's composite is a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. And even though we like two four seven better, he's a three star there. But I think he'll get a bump. I think right now, as we get into the season, if you just look where recruiting is, I, I don't think we're going to fall any. I don't think we're going to fall to 30 because if you start going through, there's only so many teams that are going to be able to add more. Are there going to be some elites that pass us? Yes. That's going to happen. Are there going to be some top 15 teams currently that pass us? Yeah. But I don't think it's going to be enough because we still are probably going to pick up anywhere from three to four more. One we talked about earlier is a pretty highly ranked guy, um, which is going to help us even more. I don't see us follow. Do you think we're going to be in the 30s, or do you think we're going to have a two next time number at the end? I think we're going to be kind of where we typically are, which is somewhere between 25 and 30. I don't think we're going to drop into the 30s. Um, And a lot of this is going to depend on what happens in the season and immediately following the season. So I'll I'll put that caveat in there. But if, if things roll through, say we finish like eight and four staff is retained, you know, whatever it is. I think we finish somewhere between 25 and 30 things go South. Other big changes are made. Then obviously all bets are off. Exactly. Well, the whole piece I'll say is this. I don't think he can go so much far South after what happened last year, even with the coaching staff. I mean, for real, like what, I mean, how much worse can it get than last? There, there. Well, also, there, there. Even with all that turmoil, there wasn't a whole lot of movement towards exactly. towards signing day. So exactly, exactly. I, I think I think barring an actual change in regime, you're, we're probably looking at not not too much of a drop off. Very true. Very true. All right. So next, what we're going to look at here, I'll put my beer down and make the announcement before I have a sip. <laughs> The Hokie Hall of Fame was announced. Lots of great players. We're going to focus on the three Hokie football players. Let's start, Brian, with Tyrone Drakeford, someone essentially from our youth, someone actually connections to our hometown. Um, I know she's probably not listening, but I'll still shout her out. Maybe somebody will say, I heard you on Facebook the other night. Brenda Best Cousin, Tyrone Drakeford, corner, played at Tech in the 90s, a Hell of a football player was drafted by the Niners. Won a ring with the Niners. Played up to two thousand one. Um, one of those original, the, one of the original guys that started the DBU man. Yeah, I mean, this is a big one for you because uh, I'd say really all three of these guys that we're going to talk about are, are kind of big for for us in general. But this one for you with the with the Forty Niners tie in there. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tyrone Jagford was kind of the the OG of DBU here. Um, and you know, nothing but good things to say about his time in Blacksburg and was one of those guys, as you mentioned, when we were first, first turning on the television by choice to, to, to follow the Hokies, um, you know, that, that was a name we heard and that we love seeing making plays. So exactly. We were younger. We we're probably nine, 10. We were starting to get our cognitive stuff together. Um, and essentially he was, you say what you want to say. He uh he got drafted in '94, so he was literally part of the team that saved Beamer's career. If 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 guys like Drakeford aren't there, 
guys like Maurice DeShazo aren't there in 93, we who knows what happens to the program. Now, buddy, the next two guys, this was our heyday. This was our heyday. My heart, man. My heart. Our My heyday heart. in Blacksburg. Let's start first with the X-Man, Xavier Adibi from down at Phoebus, down in Hampton. I mean – my favorite defensive player from that era other than Daryl Tapp. So that's it's I mean it's <laughs> and then you can have the argument is he's the greatest backer of all time. People can fight, you can fight with him and Tremaine. Um, you know. But you know, it goes back and this is again, guys, you know, he played in the league four years. He was all ACC, he was all American in 07. And he was just one of those guys you remember hauling a DB. And, you know, it goes back again. It was during our heyday. He was a freak. Yep. A freak at linebacker for his time. And I'm trying to think of what play was it, Brian? Was it that interception? It was one of the interceptions we've talked about on here before. I know I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm blanking as well. I wish you would. <laughs> but but it, so many plays he made. So awesome this guy getting on. Um, yep. You know, and obviously he was again one of the what's? Brothers. What's Set of brothers. Yep. Nathaniel played before. He followed Nathaniel. him. It, it, so it's it, it keeps going on. Um, yeah, I mean, so when – when I think Hall in the DB, I mean that was that was like one of my favorite eras for this defense because Hall was solid, always there, and then a DB was like he was just the playmaker. He was all over the field. He was getting interceptions. He was breaking up passes. He was completely knocking the shit out of guys on if they were trying to get outside on the edge. I mean, just watching those two was awesome, and a, a DB was definitely one of my favorites um, of those those 2000s teams that were just so good. Absolutely. And, I mean, they were part of literally the defenses that were number one in the nation that were holding teams to like eight points that we used to scream, if we can have a decent bleeping offense, we will win the <laughs> title. Um, just, just, to, just so you know how nasty the stats was, 266 tackles, 25 tackles for loss, nine – Nine sacks. He had eight picks as a middle linebacker in really three years of yep. playing full time. That's nuts. So, all right. So finally, folks, we're going to hit my local here to the RBA. Victor Macho. Macho Harris out of Highland Springs. I mean, one of was it the first five star landed. First five-star landed, right? Yeah. was Macho, I think. And, man, he was a lockdown corner in, in every sense of the word. Multiple ace, multiple, um, all-ACC. I feel like – why do I want to say he was an All-American, too? It's not telling me that here, but – So, uh, I, you know, a little, uh, little background here. Uh, coach uh, – well, home, hometown uh, – friend of ours, uh, Charlie Crittenden. Uh, he actually coached me my sophomore year of high school offensive line, making grads, so I won't hold that against him. But 
he uh, he was coaching uh, Macho when he was in high school at, at the Highland Springs. So uh, I remember hearing about uh, th- this this Macho Harris guy before some other folks were ready for it. Um, but just the number one, like there, there's there's so much swagger that Macho brought to the to the uh, to the to the field there. Um, Got the uh, offensive, defensive, and special teams touchdown. I mean, that, that, that's still like that's something that that just doesn't happen every day. I mean, n- n- nothing but good yeah, things that can be said about Macho, man. Yeah, two guys did it, Macho and D Hall. Yep, and that's it. And they and he was a special, special athlete. Um, and you know, it's great to see these guys. I don't know when they'll be inducted. I probably can find it on the schedule. Uh, depending on when that game is, we might have to circle that one, Brian, to go up to to visit. Yeah, that'd be a good one. That might be a good one. All right. So next thing we're going to look at here, folks, and we're rolling right along as fast as we can, is we're going to look at the ACC Corona policies this year. Last year was really, there you go, 07 Macho at Clemson. Very true. All right. So here are kind of the three guidelines. Most match the other conferences, but the third one's a little different. The first one is if a game cannot be played on its original scheduled date due to a team having an insufficient number of people due to the COVID-19 virus, that team will forfeit the game and the win will be assigned to the other team. Everybody's doing that. Makes sense, right? Yep. Makes sense. Yep. Second one, if the ACC game cannot be played on the date for any factor – other than that, and there are game discontinuation circumstances, I'm going to assume that would be like hurricanes coming through, you know, other factors, potentially medical factors, something like that. Those games, essentially, you're looking at a potential reschedule. So basically, anything pre-COVID that could get canceled and rescheduled, it would be canceled and rescheduled. Yep. The third one is the most interesting one. No other conference has this. <laughs> I'm going to read this verbatim. If a 2021 ACC game cannot be played on its original scheduled date due to both teams being able to play due to an insufficient number of players related to the COVID-19 virus, both teams shall be have deemed forfeited the forfeited the game and a loss will be assigned to both teams and applied to the conference standings. Double L's. Double L's. Double L's. So that's exactly what you want to hear. Double L's. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be teams like, I hope they get up. They all get COVID and can't play. Like we're going to be sitting here watching like Miami and UNC. I hope they all get COVID. And- <laughs> <laughs> does, does the last piece shock you or is that the ACC saying you both bleep up? Nobody's getting anything. It essentially applies the pressure across the board. It's not just, you know, it's not just a game of chicken. Like if you both can't play, then you both get the L. (laughs) Love it. Love it. So there are the policies uh, based on kind of what you're seeing from throughout college football. All the players are over an 85% threshold. Um, Most teams, Virginia tech hasn't confirmed, but I don't think they'll ever be able to confirm a hundred percent. Most teams are probably between 97 and 99. It might be a few guys here and there, medical reasons and or religious purposes, not, you know, vaccinated. Um, 
and you're fine. Exa- there, Jay Burns E4, shout out. Double L's cause more coastal chaos. So there's going to be like three of them then, right? Yep. That's what, that's what the coastal does. All right, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this the, the coastal's already, I mean, it, it's already going to be interesting because you feel like you got a tier one and then you got a tier two, but there's not a huge gap, I don't think. Nope. A little bit margin for error can can really throw things into a uh, a tailspin there and put put probably four or five teams in play for the coastal going into you know the, the later part of November there. Exactly. All right, so we're gonna hit our first big topic of the night: the announcement yesterday from the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12 about their alliance. Brian, before we get into some individual points, me and you have kind of pulled out. What was your overall feel on? <laughs> Overall like, feel. <laughs> well, the first time I heard about it, I could all I could think about was Dwight asking Jim if he wanted to form an alliance, <laughs> uh, and to which you know the response is absolutely I do. Um, yeah, uh, my my first thought was I think this. I wouldn't consider this as a power move. This isn't a power move, but this is a this is a move about viability and survival in what looks to be a very uncertain next several years in terms of a realignment and things of that nature. So I don't think a partnership can hurt. Um, I just, you know, we'll get into it, but I'm not sure exactly how much it's helping other than potentially looking at the scheduling aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, we'll go into, we're going to go into a couple of times. I think it's a leverage play. Because I think now if you've got three commissioners on board, any sort of NCAA rulings, any sort of college football playoff, they're going to have leverage, right? They've got more institutions and they've got more power because we have three conferences. And it's essentially at the SEC is like, cool, you've got the two big boys, but you're still one conference. So you don't hold all the cards versus if, if they had kept Texas and Oklahoma in the big 12 and just said, Hey, we're forming a partnership. We're going to play us. Everybody's going to play at least one cross conference game every year. Stop it at that. All right. Let's jump into the first thing, Ron. The first thing I kind of caught my ear listening to this yesterday is they said 41 schools. Let's do math, Brian. There's 14 ACC schools. Yep. There's 14 big 10 schools. Yep. There's 12 pack, 12 schools. That equals 40. So what does that tell you? Who is the plus one? Well, that plus one is going to be more than likely Notre Dame. So mainly, and I say that because this alliance was talking about football and hoops partnerships. So by default, they were, they might've been thrown in there. So it'll be interesting to see what that really means for football. Um, But the fact that it's 41 definitely means that Notre Dame is in play there. Yeah, you got Swarbrick on the CFP model council. The other thing I'm going to say is this. I don't know how long the contract is, and if somebody out there wants to look it up and put it in a message to us, do it. Notre Dame is contracted to play five ACC games a year. Five. If you start looking at their other primary rivals throughout time, Navy's one. Yep. That's six. Purdue. Michigan State. Northwestern, Michigan have been their primary rivals. The Michigan series is weird, but Purdue and Michigan State were there every year. 
Yep. That gets you up to about nine or ten every year, give or take. And then West Coast wise, they've always played USC and Stanford. Yep. If for no other reason they're getting into this, is well, we'll keep our five ACC games. We can get back on track with the Big Ten games, and we've got our West Coast games. We the only thing that the only thing they would for they would balk at, um, mm-hmm. you know, looking at is all right. So we're playing schedule wise, they would probably be on the upper end of the spectrum in terms of strength of schedule. Yeah, every year. Yeah, every year. Yeah. Now, granted, if they stay independent while adopting this model, they probably will need that strength of schedule to make their case for a playoff position. Every year. But again, being involved with it, it's going to be a lot easier to just go in there and say, we're going to play five in the ACC. We're going to play a few in the Big Ten. We're going to play in the few in the Pac-12. Essentially, let us be your one of your games every year. Yep. And hate to say this, not hate to say this, no team is going to turn down a series or a game with Notre Dame. It is too much money. It's either you're getting national exposure on NBC, or if if you are getting them at home, A, your, your home stadium is going to sell out. Um, the secondary ticket prices are going to be insane. The hotel room rates are going to go insane. You're going to make a lot of money that weekend. But also, you're normally – and again, I say normally because this year they bleeped it all up. Although it seems like there's about to be a deal between Comcast and ESPN to get the ACC network on. You're going Let's to- hope we we did get the we did get the oh we made a mistake line full, from the other the other full, night. Full, full. We 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 full. made a mistake. We uh, we actually put ACC programming on the SEC secondary channel. No, that was a test. They were making sure they could get it done. But you're going to get a primetime game with them. And every team wants that exposure. All right, Brian, you mentioned it, football and hoops partnerships. What what do you think? I mean, they're definitely targeting the sports that are bringing in the money. So that, I mean, that, that, that's full stop. Probably what this is all about. Um, Because more or less any, any sort of realignment and any sort of major votes are going to hinge on those two sports, right? Very true. Very true. So that that that's why it's strategically positioned for those two sports. That that that's the ones bringing in money. That's the ones where these decisions matter in terms of dollars. At the end of the day, right? Oh yeah, D- dollars by the end of the day. Now they mentioned a few other sports as well. Um, you know. Pac-12 and Big Ten women's volleyball is it's exceptional. I've watched a couple Big Ten games um, before, but then you kind of think about think about a Virginia Tech secondary sport that's not football or basketball. Think about wrestling and potentially getting meets with Big Ten, where you've got Iowa, Penn State, Minnesota, some really essentially like Virginia Tech's a top ten program you've got multiple top five programs there. Yeah. And then I think West coast. What's, what's the second, what's the, what's the, the next big secondary sport in the ACC behind football and baseball? No, no, no disrespect to wrestling is baseball. Yep. And the PAC 12 has always had damn good baseball. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Now, as we look at it, the way the and this is where you kind of get the well, this is just a bunch of puff bull crap. You know, the, <laughs> the schedule aligns. This is where the fluff begins. Well, let me do this. Let's turn it backwards. The schedule lines will begin as soon as practical while current obligations are being upheld. Okay, that's basically saying it's TV contracts. And it's probably really – it's more probably the, the Pac-12 when they get that opportunity. It's going to be, what, 2023 is when theirs ends. That's when, the, that's when you're going to see it start leveraging, when, you know – they say, hey, how about this year? How about uh, USC? Give me a good Big Ten team, Brian. USC plays Ohio State. Ohio State in the horseshoe. Or in the Coliseum. All right, Washington, really good up in the upper northwest. Hey, we want to play FSU. That's when you're going to start seeing them leverage to say, we are getting in place name brand teams to bring on to Fox Sports that yep. we're not seeing because of their current contracts with ESPN. I'll tell you what's funny, though, and I, I know this is just unfortunate timing because I'm sure these discussions have been in works way before the alliance. <laughs> yes. But today, USC announced that they've added LSU to their schedule. 2024. So, 2024, yeah. So, uh, again, it's absolutely those discussions have been going on way before the Alliance stuff started, but oh, yeah. the timing could not have been at worse for saying, Hey, we've got a, a handshake agreement here that, you know, we're, we're in this together. And then the next thing you know, you know, you get a, a, a scheduled opponent with an SEC team. So let's just say when all this comes to fruition in 2024, that um, USC will be asking to play either Wake Forest or Rutgers. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. We good. We, we won't. We won't one of them. We don't need you. Fu- you fucked our PR. Exactly. <laughs> we're right. giving you the donut. Exactly. Let me ask this, Don. So, Big Ten, Pac twelve said they were very, you know, open to the idea of a playoff expansion. Jim Phillips, new ACC commissioner, said, "Ah, eh, well, you know, we're, we're we haven't landed on the final decision yet." Do you think that's him being legitimate, or do you think that's more leverage play to say, if one of us isn't happy, we're going to all reconsider? I think he's hedging. Um, I, I mean, I think at this point, being non-committal gives him the opportunity to to kind of go where the wind is taking the situation. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad decision, but at the same time, I would have wanted I would have wanted a more definitive direction. I'd rather I'd like the ACC to take a little bit more of a leadership role in this thing, and I feel like punting on that kind of takes away some of their, their power later on to, to be a strong player in what the, whatever the final decision is. Well, do you think it's because right now they're saying what the top six conference champions? Yeah. If that was the assumption there was going to be a power five. Do you think that's maybe that's the reason they're holding to say if the big 12 can't get their bleep together and get some other current I think the concern is that if you only have four major conferences, you don't do six. That 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 that's going to open up more opportunities for SEC to take more of those at-large spaces yeah. in the playoff, which removes some of the power that the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12 have in terms of getting revenue from the college football playoff. 
Can I tell you what's going to happen? Michael Yost is going to stumble into his prediction of eight being correct because the ACC is going to be like four conference champions and four at-larges. <laughs> and my, I, you're still going to end up with three of those eight being SEC every year. I don't know because I think at that point in time, I think there's going to be a lot of different criteria. And that's what we I hope so. I, I hope that there's not just – I mean, I – we're still early in this. I know I put my, my flag in the ground for 12, but I put my flag in the ground for 12 before there was any talk of Texas and Oklahoma leaving the the uh, Big 12 for the SEC and other realignment things. And this definitely makes me want to reevaluate that a little bit. Um, I still think 12 overall is good for the overall health of college football, but with fewer Power 5, potentially fewer Power 5 conferences, it definitely – kind of changes that outset because you are going to have more power five at largest by default. Absolutely. All right. Next piece was the no contract piece. When they said that, what did you think? Eh, I mean, I, I love, I love handshake agreements as much as the next person, but I guess getting it in writing isn't possible at this time just because there's a lot of moving pieces and it's better to better to have something verbal until we know a little bit more than we know right now. All right. That's just my take. Did you read Hokey Andrews uh, tweet? I did. And that, that was a good point as well, because he was talking about market collusion and price fixing. If you've got and multiple got- conferences, essentially, ganging up on another conference in terms of wedging them out from a financial perspective and or I at least p- making a power play against them at, from a financial perspective. Yeah. And I think that's probably the reason why, again, you've got three guys who are attorneys that are doing this and I'm sure their first thought was, well, Hey, we can do an agreement contract. Like somebody probably said, yeah. And if the sec files an antitrust lawsuit against us, guess what? They're going to win. So they're going to break this up before it even starts. Or it's not going to be economically feasible for us to try to win it, and then we'll it, just figure it, out. Exactly. We'll, we'll essentially be back where we are anyway. Exactly. So I think that was maybe – I think it's more it, – it doesn't look good, but I think if you start thinking about it, it's like, okay, it makes sense right now. If they're on the same page, it's more of the voting thing. Like, you know, how many times do you have things you vote on, whether it be social, you know, you know, social organizations or other things that's go back to thinking SGA and stuff like that, or even maybe neighborhood councils where it's like, you're voting this way, right? We're all going to vote this way because we don't want that to happen. And they're going to try to make that happen. But if all six of us vote against it, they can't. So, and if it's a handshake agreement, they can't sue you for anything. All right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's the old. I mean, it's the old backdoor arrangement. Like you, yeah. you, you, it's not it's not anything formal, but it's so it's almost it's so close to being formal that by de facto it is. Uh, you know, the same outcomes come into place, and hopefully they'll able to to, to keep that together. Um, like I said, I would I would want the ACC to take a little bit more of a leadership role on this. Um, especially in terms of what the playoff is going to look like, because I feel like that's going to be the biggest piece of the financial puzzle long-term. Big time. So hopefully hopefully there's a little bit more information about that. Yeah, and again, the playoff piece, 
also two of these network two of these conferences have their primary games are on Fox. Fox is not in it right now. So nope. you know what? I think any talk of expansion now in the next few years is not they're gonna vote it down. Right. Nope. Because I think what they want to do is let it get out there and get bidded by I think Fox is telling the Pac twelve on that. It's probably right. Just vote no. Just vote no because when it gets here, we're gonna go after it hard. And maybe hopefully what we can get is more of a split playoff um where we see multiple TV entities handle it versus just ESPN and yeah. All right. So we, we kind of mentioned it already. The Big Twelve, they all mentioned the importance of keeping that conference alive. To your point, Brian, playoff, right? If you can have them be viable, you have a fifth playoff team. Yeah, and and they're gonna they're gonna have to, to do some work to remain viable. They they cannot hold Pat mm-hmm. and, and and hope for survival. You've lost your two biggest uh, revenue dogs in your conference. True, and that's it's going to be, and it, and it's going to be interesting whether whether Texas and Oklahoma decide to pay the buyout to start this thing early, Woo. whether they decide to ride it out and hope that the Big 12 folds so they can depart early without having to pay the buyout, or if the Big 12 is able to make some moves with some of these other G5 conferences, potentially, or maybe even um, Power 5 conferences, to get a get a team or two to come over to, to, to their side of the, uh, the field there, because they're going to need something... To remain viable, they can't, I, I definitely don't think they can just hold their status quo right now no. for the next three to five years and hope to remain viable. Now they can't hold status quo, um, but if Texas or Oklahoma chooses to pay that buyout, it, it still will take a couple of years of the SEC money to recoup it. Um, sure, but lo- long game, they they can afford it. It's just the question: Do they want to take the short term loss? especially coming off of COVID, in order to achieve that. Well, also, let's just say it. You're also going into – I'm not going to hesitate on it. You're going into the strongest conference. What if you go in there and become a 6-16? Six and 16? Your brand's done. You're, you're, your, the- brand, your brand suffers, but Texas has still been the number one athletic department in terms of revenue while being a fucking middling-ass program for the last decade. Middling ass, did you think you were going to hear that tonight? <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? This is probably, I think, what – this is my opinion of how the Big 12 can somehow make it. They are going to be looked at as the ugly stepsister of the group. But you go – you look at Central Florida, you look at Cincinnati, you look at Memphis, you look at BYU, and you look at Boise, and you just invite them and just say whatever happens is what happens – and we're going to figure it out from here because at least you have with those five schools, they have brains. Okay. They are known to they are known to average college football fans. Um, BYU, know we we know has a very passionate base as does Boise. The other ones are building. You just you just almost say screw it. This is literally a hail mary. 
even if we don't score the touchdown and everything happens perfect, we're going to probably get pass interference. We're going to have the ball down at the one where we're not going to be what we were, but we're not going to become the SWAC. For all y'all young folks, go review SWAC and what the fuck happened 30 years ago. Yep. History lesson. It's happened before. So when we look at the Big 12, I mean, are they essentially right now kind of what the Big East was after in the, in the early 2000s after the, the, the departure of Virginia Tech and Miami? That's exactly what they were. And they chose to stand pat, right? They didn't try to add teams. They didn't try to build up. We can make it like this, and they freaking fell. Yep. Because the teams that had viable, decent football programs or viable markets, just peace. Like, nope, because this is not going to work. And in this case, um, that's why I think you do that. That's why you think you just throw it to the wall and just say, this is what we're going to do. And, and from a dollars and cents perspective, this is definitely a bigger blow to the Big 12 than what that was to the Big East. Much bigger. Much bigger. Because I think it's the time frame of where we are. In the early 2000s, the contracts weren't, they weren't, weren't what they were. Yep. All right. Let's hit the last couple topics here. Um, they, they basically said we're not going to handcuff any other out-of-conference games. So they basically are keeping all your rivalries alive. You know, Georgia, Georgia Tech, South Carolina. That, that's not shocking because I don't think they're trying to play bully ball. I just think they're trying to hold leverage and say, you're not going to run the show. They're trying to hold leverage and then they're trying to create some unique matchups within this to to g- gain that leverage when it comes to college football playoffs and stuff. Yeah. So we'll, we'll still have those, maybe even create some new ones. Now, the last piece we're going to hit here, and this was near the end of it, was – Pac-12, Big Ten are at nine games. The ACC is at eight. Um, the way that conversation was flowing, Brian, I don't know if you were watching it live. I truly think, and this is why I think you're going to have multiple crossovers a year between these two com- these three conferences, is um, they're going to have eight conference games. We're not going to go up. We're going to go down because what we're going to do, we're going to – we're gonna keep. We're gonna squeeze the conferences in, so we can get these two games. Probably one more P five game, and then likely a G five game. Yep. And I think that's a good move because it, it gives you the opportunity to work those schedules, like we were talking about. Um, get get the interesting crossover matchups. Get some intriguing, um, you know, college football playoff ramification type games with non traditional opponents. Um, so I think that's going to be good across the board. Um, and then in terms of the conference, eight games more or less is enough, especially with conferences as large as 14. Yeah. Um, eight versus nine doesn't really change a whole lot. Not a lot. What it helps you do, though, is it's going to give you more markets. And people are asking, well, why do you do this? If you go out west and you get four more larger TV markets, again, you're expanding your bases. And some people say, well, that's stupid. Why would Virginia Tech want to try to expand into California? Because there's a lot of football players in California. It makes sense. For the West Coast teams, let's get on the East Coast. For the East Coast, let's get on the West Coast. Simple as and that. just the revenue in general from the TV money. I mean, they're more eyes on, a, on the screen 
drives that money up, man. That's that's what it's all about. Damn. They play more more games, they get more eyes on them. Then that's a good thing. And Damn. there's nothing more intriguing than competitive teams playing non traditional opponents in games that fucking matter. Bingo, buddy. All right, guys. So before we get further into the main topic tonight of us predicting the Hokie season record, we are going to take a quick pause for a message from our digital partner. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, buddy. We are back here after our brief break there. And we're going to get right into the main topic. So we're talking about our prediction for the Hokie season in 2021. And before we really get into what we think on the games that are that matter, we're going to go ahead and put six games <laughs> in the W column right out the gate. Um, we feel like on paper the Hokies should win these games barring catastrophic injuries that happen during the season. So that is Middle Tennessee State, University of Richmond, Syracuse, Georgia Tech, Duke, and UVA. Based on what we think about this team, we feel like Virginia Tech should handle their business against these teams. Yes. We we came to a consensus last week after uh, talking with Brett, getting deeper into Pick 6 Previews article, reading some other publications, kind of talking, seeing in general. We should win all six of these games. If we lose one or potentially multiple of these games, heads should roll. And certain people should not be in positions come roughly December 8th. I think that's the time frame this year. Um, On paper, we match up significantly with all these teams. These teams are all struggling. I know everybody keeps telling me Middle Tennessee State and the Florida State players. There's a reason Florida State players left Florida State and did not land at any other school but Middle Tennessee. I'm sorry. You can say they're athletic. They're great. If they were that great, they would have found their way onto a P5 team. Do you agree with that, Brian? That's a fair assessment. I mean – I think they they could still be what I would consider starting caliber players on Power Five schools. I don't think they're game changers, and I think that's the difference there. Um, you know, we're not talking about um, someone that's going to go out there and you know, if they were on a Power Five team, they'd be a, a potential All Conference player. These are guys that if they were on a Power Five squad, they'd probably maybe start, maybe be a rotational player but instead they're trying to go and be a star for uh, a middle Tennessee state. So that that's my assessment. Well, I, I think you're pretty much spot on there. Um, and, you know, we've got the, uh, several other conference teams there that are just, you know, we talked about it last week. Uh, Syracuse is flailing. Duke is awful. Georgia Tech is unpredictable, and UVA doesn't have a secondary, and I'm not sure if they've got enough defense elsewhere to compensate for it. 
There you go. So there's our assessment. So we'll go ahead, write that down, everybody. Currently, we are at six and up. Let's jump, buddy. First game of the season, North Carolina. I'll let you lead on this one. Oh, you're going to let me lead? Oh, buddy. Yeah. So North Carolina is going to come into Lane Stadium next Friday night, 6 p.m. ESPN. Five-and-a-half-point favorites on the road in the Terror Dome. And I'm sitting here, and they're ranked, and they got Sam Howell. Man, he's going to be a number one pick next year. He is. Oh, number one pick, great player. I decided to do some math. Okay. And this is what I found out. So, Michael Carter, running back, gone, correct? Yep. Javante Williams, running back, gone, correct? Yep. Diami Brown, running back, gone, correct? Yep. Excuse me, wide receiver. Wide receiver. Gone. Daz Newsom, wide receiver gone, correct? Correct. Are they sitting in the transfer portal or on another team for a grad transfer year? No. No. They are all in NFL training camps, all making rosters. By the way, Brian, Michael Carter, the New York Jets, is running back late rounds next next Tuesday night. (laughs) So – we're drafting next Tuesday, guys. Yeah, we've, we've got a fancy draft. <laughs> so, all those guys are gone. In their careers, which primarily is the last two seasons, they made up 10,042 yards from scrimmage and 83 touchdowns. All of that is gone. I think Bo Corrales is a good receiver. I don't think Bo Corrales can make up that much production along with guys who have really never played. And lastly, last week was mentioned that they're returning all five of their stars on the offensive line. Well, that's good. But when an offensive line gives up sacks per attempt, 104 out of 120 teams, that ain't great, Bob. And without those two dynamic running backs to run that RPO offense, I think the Hokies are going to shock the world next Friday. We'll get into it deeper next week. Give me a W to lead off the season, Brian. So I am at 7-0. Curtis with the Hokie upset to lead things off there. Where are you at? Not so fast, my friend. Oh, man. Well, folks, go ahead. Put Brian's at 6-1. and one. <laughs> I think I think this is going to be a very close game, but I think the experience of Sam Howell and the improvement of that defense and probably our offense, while not anemic or anything by that nature, taking probably a small step back, especially in the running game, I think we're going to have – we're not going to have the ability to put up quite as many points as we were able to, especially in the second half last year. And I think just the experience of how that offensive line and that improved defense is going to be enough to get them over the hump. So I, I predict a somewhat high-scoring game, kind of like a 38-33, 38-35, somewhere in that that range. But I think UNC pulls the W. All right. So Brian has us taking the loss at UNC. I have us taking the W. We will get deeper into this game next week, folks. So join us back here, same time, and watch it. All right. Let's move on. 
We've already checked at Middle Tennessee State off. Now we're going to go to West Virginia. Brian, what do you think happens with the Black Diamond Trophy about a month from now? Well, buddy, we are keeping the Black Diamond Trophy. Go on. I think on paper we're a better team. I think we're going to be able to score enough points against this team, even with some step back in our offense. And I think our improved defense is going to do just enough in that raucous atmosphere to pull out a late W. All right. I'm going to duck now. <laughs> you now have seven and one, and now I have seven and one. I think we lose this game because I think the home field advantage is going to be massive for them, even at a noon kick, which it's going to be. I think that is going to be one of the biggest things, as we know from our days of being fans a long time ago when we played every year. That is not a fun place to play. They are a bunch of assholes. They throw shit. They do a lot of dirty shit. I think they they're going to be they burn couches. They burn couches. But I think they are yearning to get that trophy back. They haven't had it in 17 years. Now, besides that, a couple other reasons. They lost three really key defenders in um, Tariq Smith, Dre Miller, and Darius Stills. Obviously, Darius Stills, I think everybody knows. Darius Stills went pretty high in the draft, was really looked at hard on the defensive line. But they still turn a return a ton of production on the defensive side of the ball. Um, so I think that is going to be one thing with the raucous crowd. Again, we're not a terrible offense, but we're not good enough to probably overcome both of those things. Now – one thing that does give me pause is their quarterback, Jared Dodge. He is a non-dual threat quarterback, so you don't have to worry about his legs. And he's not a good deep passer of the ball. Um, so it's one of those things where even though I see us losing, I think a tight game. I think a tight game. Right, right now as we sit, I think it's going to be super tight. Talk to me three weeks from now, once we beat Carolina and we beat Middle Tennessee State and I'm six beers deep on a Wednesday night, maybe I changed my mind. But right now, I, I just don't think it's going to be enough. We're probably going to lose like a three- to five-point game there at the moment. Okay. All right, Brian. Let's go to Notre Dame. You want me to go or you want to go? I'll let you lead this one, buddy. You're going to let me lead this one. Maybe this is the trend here. <laughs> I absolutely toggled with this one back and forth over and over and over. And then I talked with Brett. And we had our conversations with Brett. And as he discussed, Jack Cohn ain't Ian Book. I think Ian Book is an exceptional collegiate quarterback, has potential to be an NFL quarterback. If he had a little bit bigger of an arm, I think he would have been probably a first two-round pick. But the big piece that Brent discussed, and it just kept grinding at me, one of the guys is on the 49ers and Aaron Banks, one of the guards. They lost four offensive line starters. Three of those guys went in the first three rounds of the draft. If you're going in the first three rounds of the draft, you are either going to be an immediate starter and or an immediate swing player immediately in the NFL. Yep. And, you know, the total return of production, you know, isn't terrible on the offense. It's not that bad overall. 
But when you lose your quarterback, the core of your offensive line, and, you know, the defense, you know, they're returning a lot of good starters, two on the defensive line, two in the linebacker room, one in the back end. Um, they're under Freeman now, so it's – you know, we're only going to have about a month to tape on Freeman before we go into that game. You yep. know, he likes to run multiple. We know he likes to do things different. But I think because of the way our defensive line looks in the first eight, I think this is going to be a rehash. You ready for the game, Brian? Shoot. It's going to be a rehash of 2019. But there's going to okay. be. Few scrambles from Braxton Burmeister late. I think we look at that game as a one possession, a one field goal game. But I think Fuente gets his biggest win in the era. So right there, I'm at eight and one. What about you? I got this one as a loss as well, man. Um, yeah, and it, it really comes down to a couple factors. It's going to be Kyron Williams, Chris Tyree, and a defense that returns a lot of production. Um, I think Marcus Freeman is going to potentially get even a little bit more out of those ranks with running the multiple, because you're going to see a little bit of a different look and offenses will be able to get comfortable and make any keys. And I think there's with the returning production, you're not going to see a drop off in the top end level of play for them. While I think that's going to be a big impact on their, on their offense, losing, you know, four, Multi-year starters, three of which were draft picks, uh, two in the second round, one in the third. I just, I'm, I'm not sure if that alone is going to be enough for us to get over the hump against them at that point of the season. All right, well, let me ask this before we close this down. Brian is now seven and two. I'm eight and one. Good lord, we're going to go to the coastal champ. We're going to win the coastal if I keep going like this. Let me ask this. <laughs> Do you see this being a rehash of 2019 or 2018? I think it's going to be closer to 2019. I think this is definitely a okay. close down to the wire game. But you're going to see this as an absolute dogfight at night. In like yeah, I think we're going to struggle up and down. I think we'll be able to move the ball somewhat against them, but I think we'll have a hard time finding the end zone. And I think they're going to have – they're going to hit some big plays against us in the running game, but they're going to struggle to move the ball consistently in the passing game uh, because we'll be able to get after their quarterback. So that that's how I think the game's going to go. I think it's going to be a tight one down at the end, but I think they'll just have enough gas to get over the hump against us. All right. Again, folks, talk to us in five weeks. We might have very different opinions on this. You know, and again, this is us looking where we are now. And I think as we get to kind of the middle point here, this is what it is. This is what we're seeing as we are now. I think I'm looking at an optimistic lens. I think Brian's a football player that's been on the field a lot more than me, so he's taking a little bit of a different look. But if y'all are coming in at us in three weeks saying, well, Curtis, you said we were going to lose West Virginia. Now you've got us winning. Why? Well, because I've seen game tape, and it's different in my opinions. All right, Brian. I'm going to let you leave this one. Pitt comes to Lane Stadium in October. What do you think on that one? That's a fucking W for the Hokies. Pat Narduzzi cannot win in Lane. We're going to eat Kenny Pickett alive. It's going to be fun. Um, like At this point, Kenny Pickett is what he is. They're going to live and die by what he's able to do and how much they're able to uh, 
help him in every game. Um, I think that defense takes a big step back this year, losing a lot of talent to the NFL. And I don't think all of a sudden Kenny Pickett is going to be a new a new player. We we know we know his floor and we know his ceiling, and I think we're going to get more of the same. But I think we're going to be do a, a lot better job of making him uncomfortable this year. And just for some reason, when we play Pitt in Lane, it is completely different than playing Pitt in Heinz Field. Exactly. You know what? Whit needs to like schedule that game every year and make it be at uh, FedEx. No, we don't. No, no, no. Let's just do it at FedEx. It's a middle point for everybody. Y'all can't put anybody in the stands anyway. Um, we have agreed for the first time tonight, Brian. I say we take the W. Similar a lot of stuff you said. You know, Pitt's offense is bringing a ton of production back. And you take less the Virginia Tech game last year, that offense was not good. It did not produce. And kill Kenny Pick is still the quarterback. We know what he can do, what he can't do. So – there's your one big piece. In the defense, you already mentioned they lost a ton. They really lost their f- top five players. Yep. In Hamlin, Ford, Twyman. They're two, they're two best players in the secondary and they're three best players on the defensive line. And, I mean, they had a couple young uh, guys at DT get, you know, All-American nods. But I don't – and they can definitely ramp up and get some production back on that offensive line. I don't think they get enough production back to get them where they need to be to beat teams like Virginia Tech. I also wonder if Kenny Pickett can't play if the pit AD finally says, dude, you stuck with this guy for three bleeping years. He's not good. Do something different or you're fired. I think well, that the, the, the problem is it's not that Kenny Pickett isn't good. It's that he's not good enough to hide all the other deficiencies that they have on that offense. And, but, but they expect that of him. They, they put that on him and he's just not that guy. Now they have whether they have that guy on their roster is another question. I don't think they do necessarily. I think Kenny Pickett's their best option at quarterback, but that doesn't mean that he's the guy that's going to get it done. So Kenny Pickett is their best option at quarterback. Are you, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, you, Kenny Pickett's record is 21 and 17 in three seasons, and we're probably going to see just above 500 play from them again this year, guys. It's going to be six and six or seven and five, seven and five. Book it. Bank Book. that shit right now. All right. Maybe that's one we do lay. We, we lay on the uh, apps here pit under whatever their number is. I think it is seven and a half. So I think we feel safe on that. All right, let's move on, Brian. Let's go to BC, a game last year that, you know, it looked like a blowout. It did. It looked like an absolute destruction. It was 40 to 14 or something like that. We won by more than three touchdowns. Sorry if I don't remember the number. Um, But we forced five turnovers. And, you know, the story kind of coming in for BC this year is can Frank Signetti, a guy who has coached for a long time, NFL and college, coached some good quarterbacks along his way, can he have Phil Jerkovich take that step? Because they have a – they have one of the best offensive lines, not only in the ACC, but in the country. They have a bunch of good weapons. It's kind of struggling at the running back position, but I think with a guy like Jerkovich and the weapons on the outside, that can be hidden. I think he's going to take the step. And, you know, on defense, it's can the secondary just progress up because they run a, they turn a half-half. They run a cover-one, cover-three scheme. That's what they're running. That's the looks you're going to get. They're They're – they're not variation. They're not giving you multiples. 
That's what they do. So if that can take a step, and I think Jerkovic is going to take a step, and I think if this was a Saturday game, maybe coming off of you know a normal week, we'd be able to pull the the W. But I'm going to give us the L here. Um, and maybe the only thing I can say is maybe they're good, and they're like six six or seven wins coming in, and the stadium's a little bit electric to where it gives our guys some juice. But that's the you know I think Jerkovic is actually going to become a first-round quarterback because of what he is. Probably going to Pittsburgh. Okay. Okay. What do you think? He's, he's, he's going to be, become literally Roethlisberger 2.0, though. Exactly. Weird last name, normal person. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you, bud. Um, I've got this one as an L as well. Um, and it, it comes down to, to, to Jerkovic. It comes down to – what I think will be a so, a slightly improved defense, especially in terms of limiting the big explosive plays, especially from the quarterback position. And I think just an extra year of seasoning is going to be just enough to get them over the hump because that game was not as close, uh, was a lot closer than, as I should say, a lot closer than what the scoreboard indicated last year. You mentioned the five turnovers. When you, when you have five turnovers, um, but you only have that, that margin of victory. I mean, it tells you that that's a pretty close game. That was probably a one score game. If they play to their average in terms of turnover differential, right? Being Yeah, pretty much, you know, but that is what it is. All right, Brian. So currently now I'm nine and two, you're eight and three. So we're not that far off from one another. What do you think about Miami? But that's going to be an L. <laughs> oh, damn. Even, even, even losing all their defensive line talent? Yeah. Um, I think they do a pretty good job of reloading, and I think that Derek King is going to have a monster year if he can remain healthy. I'm I'm not looking forward to this game very much. Um, you know, they they didn't do too bad in terms of returning talent. Um, you know, they, they they returned some of their their production from last year. Um, a, real, a lot of their production on offense and a good amount on defense. So, um, this may be be the year that Manny Diaz figures it out and kind of gets them to play consistently to their level of talent compared to having those about two or three clunkers in the year that either they lose or they play down to an opponent that they shouldn't and barely scrape out a win. So I, th- I think look for them to potentially, I'll throw this out there, potentially push UNC for the ACC Coastal Championship. All right. So Brian's kind of locked it in here. He is now eight wins, four losses for the Hokies, essentially. Probably finishing any somewhere between second and third, right? Depending on what I'm, happens. I'm going to say third, third in the coastal. I've got actually Miami winning the coastal. Yeah, Miami winning the coastal. All right. Well, I'm taking this as an L as well, folks. But let me just say this: everything is determined on Derek King's health of how they do this year. Those two other guys are not even close to ready. Come November, they still will not be as close to ready. And there's one thing that kind of caught my that what makes the Eric King so special 
If you look, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> T-O-O-S-M for saying this is cool. Thank you for this. <laughs> There's one thing I looked at, Brian, that will probably shock you from last year. Miami's explosive plays was was significantly in the red last year. Okay. On both sides of the ball. Or on, excuse me, not on both sides, but on passing and running downs. But that team was still able to put up over 440 yards of offense a game and over 34 points a game. That's why I say this is the fate lies on how De'Eric King is coming off his ACL. Because the way it seems is teams respected his running ability so much, they were not going to give up the big runs, right? They weren't. But what they did because of that, you were getting the old death by a thousand seven-yard cuts. They were getting yards. If you take De'Eric King out of this offense – I think they finish not first, not second, not third. I think they finish fourth in the coastal. But assume I'm, I'm with you. They they will. This will be a very live and die by how Derek healthy Derek King is. It really is. If he if he plays twelve games, I think it's they're Ten. they're right there with UNC to win the coastal. Yep. If he uh, plays, like I, said, I think it's pretty much a toss up. If, if 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 he's healthy for twelve games, if he plays every game, they win the coastal. They win so you're, you're with me. You're you're picking them to win the I'm coastal too. I'm with you. If he's healthy, they win the coastal. Okay. Um, we finish second though, because I think oh. he takes us further. I got us nine and so, three. I've got us nine. Do. And you do. And, and if you've got them, probably eight. What ten and two? Ten and two. We're, we'll okay. be. They'll be ten and two. Alabama. Uh, they'll probably screw up one other time. They'll do a typical Miami. So, so you think that game is going to decide the coastal? Yep, because I think UNC is not only going to lose to us. Um, I think UNC – let me pull out UNC's schedule here. This is the great, wonderful thing of streaming, folks. Brian usually could edit this to make it not seem as long. Um, efforting in real time, ladies and gentlemen. Efforting in real time. We're live. What that means. <laughs> so I think UNC is going to lose to us. I think UNC is going to lose to Miami. And I think UNC is going to get tripped up by NC State. I could see that. NC State's and, definitely and, a team to watch out And for. potentially Notre Dame because they play Notre Dame um, much. They play Notre Dame three weeks after we play them. So you got UNC pulling three-plus losses. Four. They're going to lose four games. They're going to go four eight games. Four. Okay. They're going to go eight and four. And it's N- NC State is is probably the the team that could snake bite them this year. Um, yeah, and that's I'm, a rivalry looking, game on weekend. Um, probably. Weekend. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty high on NC State. I, I should say I'm a lot higher on NC State than I have been in any point the uh, the last five years at least. I mean, NC, NC State is probably the the one team in the Atlantic to watch out for. Exactly. So I'm nine and three. Brian's eight and four. That is our current predictions. Entertainment purposes only. Billy Ray, what is happening, buddy? Comes a Saturday. Shout us out. We appreciate you guys watching us tonight. So, believe. Let me ask this, Brian. Either of our records. Black Monday comes. Does Justin Fuente still have a job if he wants it? I think at this point, given what we saw for, that happened last year, if it's 
eight wins or better, I think we're looking at another year of Justin Fuente. I think you're right. I think eight wins is the threshold. If he wins nine, well, we're all happy. Not completely happy because the goal every year I, I is think, I think the threshold could be potentially lower, and, and that's oh. not necessarily to say that that's a good thing. I'm just saying I think based on the information we got from last year, I think combining that with we're in the middle of a major campaign for Reach for Excellence, I feel like just there's a lot of factors where – Wit may not want to upset the apple cart unless things get ugly. Got it. And when I say that, I mean no bowl, no no UVA win. Essentially, essentially those six games I said we're booking. We're putting UVA in the L column, and then yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that and that's when we get in trouble, and that's that's when we start having similar conversations that we had last off season. Perfect. Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying that that's necessarily my expectations of what I think we should do. I'm just saying, I feel like based on the information that we have, that's the most likely outcome. Awesome. All right. So folks, we got a, we got a, we got a big question here from the Suns real quick before we, we close out. Um, what game scares you more BC or Pitt? So at BC, BC or Pitt in lane BC, 100%. Thousand percent. No, 138%. You ever seen that on a commitment video? 138% BC scares me more because we know what we get on offense from Pitt, Suns, and we know on defense you don't replace that many guys that go to the league and become an elite unit. And even with the elite unit they had last year, if you remember that game, Brian, we were pissed, but it literally took us to the third quarter to get pissed. It's not like they came out and – it's not like them at Lane in 2019 when we were there, and after the first quarter, we just knew this game's over. <laughs> they, ain't yeah. gotta, they ain't got a I mean, and BC, I mean, say what you will about the stadium size, but they, they get it rocking up there in Chestnut Hill, man. And that's why I'm hoping they have a good record. Because a Friday night game up there, if it's rocking and it gets some electricity, it will definitely give a better chance for us. If we go up there and they're like four and four, and I know that's then us saying, well, Jerkovich didn't take a step. Well, Jerkovich could take a step. That defense doesn't. They could still be mid. But if there's no juice in that stadium, that's so tough for guys to get up for. Yep. All right. 100%. So, believe it or not, Brian, this is our last broadcast of 2021 with no college football, buddy. Yes, sir. We got real games this weekend, ladies and gentlemen. Real, real games. games. Conference games. Not the best slate. Um, you've got one, two, three, four, five. You got five games. I, I like that TOOSM. It needs to be a win. BC is going to be tough. I agree. We got five games Saturday. We kick off, and we're going to pick two of them today. Y'all know we normally pick all the ACC games involved. Or most of them, sometimes it's ones like we don't even try to look at and at least maybe a couple big games. But we're looking at two games this week. We're looking at the Nebraska-Illinois game and the Hawaii-UCLA game. Let's start Nebraska-Illinois, Brian. And what we've got here is Nebraska's on the road. Scott Frost is in deep shit all over the place between not winning <laughs> games and the NCAA shit. And you've got Illinois. Brett Bielema 
takes over at Illinois, um, back in Big Ten country, back in somewhere he's comfortable. Here's the line. Nebraska is lane seven. This is at Illinois. 55 is the over-under number, the 1 p.m. kick. And for all those degenerates like us who will probably be watching, (laughs) I mean, I'll be watching. I'm not even going to joke about it. It is going to be on Fox at 1 o'clock. Last year's meeting, 41-23, Illinois. So what are you thinking for this one, Brian? You're taking a line. You're taking an over-under. What you got? Uh, I think Illinois is going to cover. All right, so you're taking Illinois with the points, right? Yep. All right, so let's write that, write that down. Um, I'm not screwing with the stinking spread. I'm just not. It's it's too much going on. We don't know where Nebraska's head is. Bielema is trying to install something new there, probably going back to his Wisconsin roots in a big power game. Don't know if he has the players there for it. Alec Bryan is on Illinois, so I really am going to kind of pull for them. I'm going to take the over of 55. Okay. okay. Over 55 for me. You're staying, you're staying away from the spread because there's too many variables. Way too many variables. Also, first games. If, um, all right. All right. If, if, if I forced your hand, who you got in, in, in the spread? Um. If it, if you force me on the spread, I think I would take Illinois. Okay. But I also could see Nebraska, who has a really good defense, locking down a converting offense and winning by, you know, 14, 17 points. But I'm going to go over because this game has not went under in, like, ever since they've started playing each other in the last few years. So I'm over 55. Brian is Illinois taking the points, and there that is. Watch that game. Um, I'm going to try to watch it. We've got some stuff going on Saturday, but I think I'll be home by one to get the old man cave fired up here. Second game, Brian. Go out to the West Coast, Hawaii, yep. UCLA. UCLA, Chip Kelly is essentially in a make-or-break season for him. Absolutely. UCLA is laying 18 points, and the over-under is 68 and a half. What you got? So I think it's two things here. Um, UCLA does return a lot on offense, but they notoriously every season (laughs) start a little slow. So I, I, I definitely have UCLA pulling this one out, but I think Hawaii with that spread, you know, they have a lot, lot, lot of, lot of points to work with. I think they, uh, they cover. I'm with you on that. I think Hawaii covers. I think UCLA wins, uh, over under, um, I'd say over. I think this is going to turn into a big shootout, which is going to be great at 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon. Buddy, has anything broken in the last hour and 36 minutes? This went a long time. <laughs> I haven't seen anything come across, buddy. I, th- I think I think we, we don't have any major break here as we close out. Awesome. Well, folks, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website at boundarycornerbt.com to listen to all of our episodes. While you're there, don't forget to allow, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to their YouTube and our favorite podcast source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. If you are looking to join the Hokie Club and help reach to achieve the Reach for Excellence campaign, please visit boundarycornerbt.com forward slash giving to get started. Our buddy Jason Long, who plays us in and plays us out. Every week, 
on the September 4th. So this is the day after the UNC game. We'll be playing at the Grandin Farmer's Market in Roanoke from 8 to 12. Go check him out. Also check him out on Spotify and Apple Music. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go Hokies!